I hope you had a good Christmas, but my guest now had an even better Christmas, as I'm delighted to be joined by UConn Professor Jonathan Trump, part of a select group of scientists who will be the first to conduct research using the James Webb Space Telescope. John, good morning. Thanks for joining me today. So tell me what your Christmas morning was like. Uh, Good morning. Yeah, oh, it was magnificent. I have to say I was up before my children, you know, so maybe the only time in my life that I'll be up before a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, you know, more excited than they are to get up for my own Christmas gift. Um, I I was, you know, visiting family in Wisconsin, uh, so it was something like 6.20 local time, James Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope, this, you know, massive $10 billion, incredibly ambitious experiment successfully launched from French Guiana on an Easter rocket. Yeah, pretty, (laughs) pretty wonderful gift to the world's astronomers. You know, and I I have to, I I also think a pretty wonderful gift for anybody who cares about space, which I think is most of us. John, compare and contrast this new James Webb Space Telescope to what we already have up there now, the Hubble. Yeah, you know, when I think about the Hubble Space Telescope, when I I think about the history of astronomy and the history of what we know about our universe, um, the launch of Hubble was kind of a, a pretty remarkable new window. Uh, allowing us to to unravel things about our universe that we never knew before. And James Webb is going to do the same thing. You know, so so Hubble and James Webb are similar in scope. But of course, Hubble is will turn 32 years old this April. You know, it it uses much, much older technology, much, much older uh, imaging detection equipment, right? And so, um, you know, James Webb is is more, much more modern design. It has a mirror that's something like two and a half times bigger than the Hubble Space Telescope's mirror. And it also looks further out into the infrared, right? So it's much more capable of observing the cold universe, which includes planets around other stars, and also much more capable of peering back to the early universe using that infrared capability. Give me an idea of how big the James Webb Space Telescope is, and how does that compare to the Hubble? Yeah, so uh, Hubble has a mirror that is 2.4 meters in diameter, right? We, you know, scientists use meters, but, you know, something on the order of... Uh, I don't know, eight feet, something like that. The mirror on the James Webb Space Telescope is six and a half meters in diameter, so almost 22 feet in diameter. Uh, This is so big, we couldn't fit it in the nose cone of a rocket, right? So James Webb had to be folded up, you know, like a crazy little uh, piece of origami to sit in this rocket. And then it had to go out into space and actually unfold where if anything went wrong, if anything got stuck, that's it. <laughs> you know, the telescope doesn't work. Fairly terrifying, uh, even after launch, to wait for the telescope to successfully unfold to its entire 22-foot diameter mirror. How does an associate professor in the Yukon Department of Physics get to be part of the exclusive group that gets to be involved in this great program? Well, I'll be honest, you know, sometimes I feel like I need to pinch myself <laughs> because it is such a wonderful opportunity. Um, Anytime we we have ideas, uh, you know, about using NASA facilities or or any kind of scientific facilities, you know, um, these facilities are, you know, built for the public good. And anytime we have ideas to use them, we write a proposal, right? We say, you know, so so I was part of a team, um, something like, I think, in 2017. So, you know, almost five years ago, we put together a proposal saying we would like to be one of the first users of the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, and here's what we'd like to do. We'd like to understand the very first galaxies, the very first black holes. There were something like 200 of these proposals put in uh, about five years ago. And a panel of my peers, you know, other astronomers from across the country, from uh, other countries as well, 
got together, judged these proposals, and ultimately 13 were selected, and we're one of those 13. Yeah. So we will get some of the very first science observations. So it's called the James Webb Space Telescope. Who is James Webb? Do you guys like text a lot? <laughs> no. No, James Webb was a NASA administrator. Uh, yeah, so the telescope is named after James Webb. Yeah. Now, it's been nearly two months since the Christmas Day launch. Has it reached its final location, L2, yet? That's right. Yeah, so, so James Webb, you know, is almost a million, or maybe I think a little over a million miles from Earth. It's, out, it's further than the moon from Earth, right? It doesn't orbit the Earth. It actually orbits the sun. At this point, we call the L2 Lagrange point. That's right. Um, it's tugged on by the Earth. It's a gravitational equilibrium point where it has some gravity pulling on it from the sun, which it orbits, and some gravity pulling on it from Earth. Um, yes, James Webb has reached L2. Uh, it has successfully unfolded, you know, so in addition to this 22-foot diameter mirror, it has a sun shield to, you know, block the bright heat and light of the sun and protect the sensitive mirrors and imagers inside the telescope. It has the sun shield that's larger than a tennis court that also had to unfold and unfurl uh, and tension out. And all of this has happened successfully. The telescope is now, at, I, I understand, I think yesterday it actually started guiding where, you know, I, we want the telescope to point in a very stable fashion. It is now doing so. Uh, and it's aligning the mirrors. So the mirror, the segments of the gold-plated beryllium mirror, uh, you know, will gently adjust and tilt to make nice, clean images. So we don't have to repeat, and if anybody remembers what happened when Hubble first launched, where the first images were a little bit blurry. Now, you mentioned the deployment of the sun shield. That was the riskiest part. Why was it so risky? Well... <laughs> Uh, just because it's so tremendously big, right? It, it was, I agree, it was certainly the riskiest part and the part that I was most on pins and needles about. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just so tremendously big. And the sunshield material is incredibly thin, right? Um, so not only does it expand out, but it actually has uh, five layers that have to tension with little gaps, little vacuum gaps in between for uh, very, very powerful insulation, right, to keep the heat of the sun on one side and protect all the instruments. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me that we can launch something, put it a million miles from Earth, and, you know, purely electronically communicate to it, okay, now do this, okay, now do that, and everything worked. <laughs> and, yeah. Now, when the sun shield, and for that matter the telescope, got fully extended, fully deployed, how did you know? Are you able to actually watch that? Are there cameras that beam stuff back to Earth, or is there other kinds of computer technology that tells you, yeah, we got it done? Yeah, so um, the James Webb Space Telescope is controlled at the Space Telescope Science Center in Baltimore. This is actually on the campus of Johns Hopkins University. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've been in that control room. It's, it's, it's been a very exciting place to be, especially over the past couple of months. Um, but, you know, this is where astronomers and engineers uh, sit and communicate to James Webb and say, okay, now do this, okay, now do that. Um, and there are sensors on James Webb, you know, that also transmit information back. There's a little antenna uh, sitting, you know, on the Earth side of James Webb, the Earth side and Sun side of James Webb, uh, that communicates all the information back. And so uh, James Webb doesn't actually have external cameras that simply take pictures of it, but we do have sensors on the telescope, right? Uh, and then we build models here on Earth. Uh, you know, here's what the telescope looks like now based on the sensor readings that we're getting. This telescope is four times further away from the moon than Hubble. What happens if something goes wrong? You can't send a space shuttle up there. That's absolutely right. Yeah, so, you know, Hubble was built such that astronauts could visit it. 
And if things went wrong, you know, or even if things didn't go wrong, we could simply go back, astronauts could simply go back, simply, <laughs> uh, could go and, and install new detectors, right, and upgrade the telescope. We can't do anything like that with James Webb. If something goes wrong, that's it. You know, we'd, we'd have this tremendously expensive, uh, potentially powerful piece of junk, right, sitting a million miles from Earth. That's it. There's, there's not really any way to fix it if things go wrong. And that was in part why all of the unfolding maneuvers, even after launch, were so, so terrifying for me as an astronomer. Is there a delay in the data transmission? And I mean that from twofold. Number one, when you're giving instructions, deploy the sun shield and so forth, or you're saying, aim it in this direction toward this black hole, for the data to get back to you or for you to send data to tell it what to do? Yes. Yes, there is a, a small delay. Um, so, you know, the speed of light is finite. The speed of light is very fast. If I turn on a light, you know, if we're standing in the same room, you'd say, oh, that light came on basically instantly, right? But over long distances, like a million miles, uh, the speed, the fact that the speed of light is not infinite is, you know, the speed of light is finite. Yes, means there is a delay travel time, right? We send a signal to James Webb. Uh, it, you know, takes, I think, on the order of less than a minute. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not instant, right, when we send a signal to James Webb. And same thing when James Webb communicates back to us. There's a delay time. So you can imagine all of these complicated deployments are very deliberate. You know, an instruction is sent. Everybody waits. Okay, did that work? We wait for notification from the telescope that, yes, this thing is now here and things are moving successfully. Very, very deliberate process, which is in part why uh, we don't expect first science observations until June. Now, Jonathan, I don't want to sound like Mulder on the X-Files here, but are we alone in the universe? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. So, you know, we have this idea um, that planets around other stars are the rule rather than the exception, right? So, you know, over the past 20 years or so, we have been finding more and more and more planets around other stars. So we think most of these stars, yes, do have planets. And then, of course, the question becomes, well, what are the conditions on these planets? Could the conditions be right? Could, they, could the conditions be like they are on Earth, where we had life develop? And in fact, life on Earth developed almost as, almost as soon as the Earth cooled enough for oceans to form. So life, the very first life on Earth developed very, very rapidly, you know, from when the Earth cooled down from its initial sort of ball of magma with meteors and asteroids and comets impacting You've also used Hubble quite a bit. What was your experience with that? And is this a more complex operation that you just have to kind of learn along, you know, learn as you go? I'm sorry, so say the first part again. Well, you've used Hubble quite a bit, and I'm wondering, is this the same basic concept, but you were kind of learning on the fly, and I do mean fly, it's out there flying around in the universe someplace, but is it the same concept of how you use the Hubble to how you use the James West Space Telescope? Yes. Uh, yeah, great question. Yeah, so NASA is trying to make it as easy for astronomers like me to use James Webb as possible, and they've actually designed it to be very, very similar uh, to how we use Hubble. There's a piece of software, you know, we call it the Astronomer's Proposal Tool, uh, where I actually, you know, design observations. I say, I want you to look here at this time, I want you to look there at that time, um, and I upload this to the Space Telescope Science Institute, and from there, it's translated, you know, into direct instructions to the telescope. So they've tried to make it as easy as possible. Now, the big difference is James Webb has entirely different instruments. Um, and so trying to think about the most 
uh, efficient ways to use those instruments for my science goals, learning about the first black holes in our universe, trying to think about how to use those instruments most efficiently is kind of a puzzle, a puzzle that I really enjoy. And is the data that you'll get yourself from the James Webb Space Telescope information that you can use in your physics and UConn classes for your students? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so already, um, you know, actually, I'm, I'm teaching a class right now, and we're in our exoplanet unit. And I'm showing some of the first Hubble observations of exoplanets, you know, and, and teaching what we know about exoplanets and trying to address this question, could there be life in the universe? Um, yes, absolutely. So, you know, I will download the data. Uh, it'll sit here on my computer, right? And I, I can show beautiful images to everybody here at UConn. Uh, and, and of course, everybody, <laughs> everybody, everybody who's interested. Is there a way the general public can see those images? Uh, yes, there is. Yeah, the, the uh, NASA has a wonderful website about James Webb, jwst.nasa.gov, uh, with all kinds of information, of course, now about the launch and the deployment of James Webb. But this is where all of the data will be shown, right? So, so NASA, you know, as a government organization, everything is public. Everything is for the public good. This thing was an $11 million observatory strapped to a rocket. Were you and probably hundreds if not thousands of scientists around the world nervous when this thing went up? This could all go haywire if the rocket doesn't get off the pad. Yeah, I was terrified. <laughs> I, I um, joined a bunch of colleagues on Christmas morning to have a watch party, you know, to watch the rocket launch. And I have to say... There wasn't any cheering on that call. We were all a little bit too nervous and too tense. Yeah, um, because if something goes wrong, there's no way to fix it. And, you know, so much of what we want to learn about our universe, I don't, I don't know that it's fair to say that my career depends on this, but uh, my, my goals, you know, my future goals certainly do. So what is the target date? What will be the date when this is fully deployed and it'll be sending back the images it's up there to send back? This June, yeah, June 2022, so far everything has gone very, very smoothly. All of these very complicated deployments have gone not just well, but actually better than expected. Um, you know, for example, we expect the telescope to last longer than we thought it would before uh, because the telescope has been able to conserve so much fuel. And so we think James Webb may be successfully orbiting for closer to 20 years rather than the sort of nominal 10-year mission lifetime. But yeah, everything is going very smoothly. And in June, we expect the very first observations of the first galaxies and first black holes way back at the dawn of the universe. Can't wait for that. And John, I'm big into astronomy. I've talked in, on the air this week about how Venus is extremely bright in the southeastern sky pre-dawn. It's probably as bright as it'll be all year. And back in my UConn days, I took an astronomy class at the physics building over there by Swan Lake at UConn. But I don't think UConn had an astronomy program then. Tell me about the new astronomy program at UConn. Yeah, well, this, this has been a very exciting thing here at UConn. Um, five years ago, UConn decided to expand into, you know, observational astrophysics, and they hired three of us, and we've now grown to five faculty. Um, we have, you know, on the order of 20 graduate students doing PhDs here. Um, yeah, pretty exciting and thriving astronomy group. It's been a lot of fun, you know, as, as somebody brought in to build a new group at a university. Um, it's been a lot of fun to, you know, think about how we design this in our own image. You know, we created an astrophysics minor. Of course, we have all these PhD students, all kinds of new classes. It's been a lot of fun. And if you get those degrees, what do you wind up doing? Yeah, you know, our graduates work in a lot of different fields. So, you know, the, the, the path that I took 
is becoming a researcher, right? becoming a research astronomer using telescopes like Hubble, like James Webb, uh, and other telescopes in space and on the ground to understand space and understand what's out there. But many of our Many of our students actually go on to work in data science. We work with very large data sets, very large imaging uh, data sets. And so, you know, our students are pretty skilled at manipulating data, visualizing data, uh, and understanding these kind of large survey data sets for other purposes. I have former students working in medical imaging, working for the Hartford, working for Electric Boat, you know, all kinds of companies like this. The James Webb Space Telescope is a big deal. Looking forward to June when it starts sending images back. And one of our local folks is involved in that project, John Trump, Associate Professor in the Department of Physics. John, thank you for joining me today. This was fascinating for me and hopefully the rest of our listeners. Absolutely. So glad to chat with you. 14 WILI Willimatic and 95.3 FM.